Today, I'm talking to fellow Canadian and certified ADHD coach, Dusty Chapura, who you might know from social media because she's got a pretty huge following there. Dusty is an expert when it comes to talking about pregnancy and the experience of pregnancy if you've got ADHD, postpartum stuff we talk about, we talk about some breastfeeding stuff, all of the things that pregnant people with ADHD or any other type of neurodivergence might want to tune in for. So enjoy, and here we go. Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, Making the Invisible Visible. I'm your host, Christina Crow. I'm a psychotherapist and a relentless mental health advocate in Ontario, Canada. I'm bringing you my clinical insights and research-based facts on modern mental health, and I'm going to bring you the experts I rely on to share their wisdom with you. Let's do it, guys. Let's dig a little deeper and make invisible things visible. Welcome to the Christina Crow podcast, where we connect the dots in search of making all the invisible things visible. Today, my guest is Dusty Chapura, who is the Henry Rollins of ADHD coaching. She is a master certified ADHD coach who coaches people with many backgrounds, but most often finds herself coaching artists, people in tech, queer people, and pregnant people. Dusty is the co-author of the ADHD and Pregnancy Journal and currently offers the only ADHD coaching program specifically aimed at pregnant ADHDers combined, combining prenatal class with survival skills for this very tumultuous time of life. When not supporting very cool ADHDers, Dusty likes to play banjo and guitar, spend time with her daughter and her pets, or engage in one of her various other hobbies, because we have lots of hobbies. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming. And it's a Sunday, guys, where we're recording. So Dusty's given up some family time to spend some time with us and share her knowledge. And so I'm really grateful for that. I thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's Sunday for you too. So my family's away today though. So it's okay. It's just me and the dogs and the cat and the frog. Yeah, a frog. Yeah. We rescued it from our pool a couple of years ago and it's been held prisoner in our house ever since. Oh. I've been thinking about getting my daughter like a frog or a turtle or something. They're pretty easy pets. Yeah. Can't complain. There's not a lot of upkeep there. But they're the kind of amphibian that I feel less guilty letting them touch it and manhandle it. I think depending on the type of frog you get, you're not supposed to touch them. So ours, because oh. it was captured from the wild of our swimming pool, it's actually an American bullfrog and okay. you're not supposed to handle them. Their skin really? secretes some sort of goo that's... Boy. If you don't wash your hands or wear gloves or you're diligent, like little kids could touch their face and stuff like that. It's not good. Are American bullfrogs the one that cartoonishly look like frogs with the yeah. big eye on top? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God, I love those frogs. I didn't know yeah. you're not allowed to. So disappointing. That's exactly well, the kind of frog I would want to handle. Yeah. So, that's well, like the most froggiest frog. When she was in our pool and we were playing with her and rescuing her from the death grip of our dog's jaw. We played with her there, but when she came inside, we did all of our frog research. That's kind of disappointing. She just hangs mm. out in her little aquarium and just waits. Maybe for the I'll go more the turtle, turtle route then. Those guys, I think you can fully play with once they're inside. <laughs> Dusty, I was so excited to find you. 
and we found each other on social media and we, we tweet with each other sometimes. And then I love watching your TikToks because you're a fellow Canadian and you're all the way out in British Columbia and I'm in Ontario. And I just love finding other Canadians that are as into ADHD as I am, as we are in our group. And so that's fun because especially in BC, you're a bit of a unicorn out there. On TikTok, have you ever seen the TikTok creator Lena's Brain? No. She's like a, okay, she's great. Oh, yeah. She tweets about, or tweets, she makes TikToks about being autistic and ADHD. Okay. And I was at a festival yeah. last year, like an Indigenous Day festival. I saw this person walk by and I was like, I think I follow that person on TikTok. And then I was just like, hey, are you on TikTok? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. And then it now we're like, not friends on TikTok. It was interesting because I saw her in real life and I actually recognized her, which is so rare for me, but just happened to be walking by. That was really funny. So it's very rare to find other, I think, Canadian content creators. I think so. Even rare to bump into them at a festival. It is. And it's fun when you can reach out across TikTok and then we can meet each other like this and talk and share our knowledge. And one of the areas that you talk a lot about that both myself my group of therapists, counselors, and coaches that I work with in the advocacy work that I do and with a lot of our clients, the issue of pregnancy and postpartum care when you have ADHD comes up a lot. And sometimes it's, it, it, was it different? It's not different if you were late diagnosed or not, I don't think. I, I think the issues are the same regardless because it's always this question about medication and how do you manage it? And then the flux of hormones and how that shifts throughout pregnancy, which affects our experience of symptoms of ADHD. How did you get into this? Like, how did you get into coaching? How did you zero in on this kind of population? So actually, I got into coaching when I was pregnant. So I used to be a musician, and then I stopped being a musician. And I think I had a bit of like a life crisis of what am I going to do? And I thought about 20 or 30 different potential career paths. And at the time, my nephew was having a really hard time in high school. And I had heard about ADHD coaching somehow. I think maybe my partner at the time had brought it to my attention that it was a thing. And I had a self-coaching book that is really good that I had read and it really helped me a lot. So I was like, oh, maybe my nephew needs a coach. And I, he was in Calgary and there were only two coaches in the whole city. And I think one of them was like actually an OT, an occupational therapist. So then I was like, oh, maybe there's not a lot of ADHD coaches in Canada. Maybe that's a thing I could do. And then at the same time, because I was educating myself on ADHD, I was posting a lot on Facebook just to my friends talking about my own self-understanding and trends that I was realizing about people with ADHD. And a lot of people reaching out to me saying that my posts were really helpful. So I started doing a little, I felt like I was doing like a little bit of ad hoc coaching, which is like friends of mine who were struggling with different aspects of their own ADHD. Mm. I was kind of giving them advice about things that had worked for me. And so I decided to go into coaching and go back to school and take coach training, ADHD coach training, while I was doing my mat leave. I started while I was still pregnant. And at that time, I also, like, when I first got pregnant, I was looking, Googling, like, ADHD and pregnancy, and I could find all this information about medication. And at that time, I wasn't medicated anyway, so that wasn't relevant. That actually wasn't what I was okay. looking for. I was looking for how do I manage my ADHD during pregnancy? Okay. And looking back on it, I would say that I was significantly impacted by my ADHD, especially in the areas of like emotional dysregulation, rejection sensitivity, which is already an issue for me was like off the charts. 
I, one time while I was pregnant, I was managing a liquor store at this time. And my, my, not co-manager, what's the person who works under you called? Your assistant manager. Yeah, my assistant assistant manager. manager. We had this conversation about the movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger and (laughs) which I love. And he had never seen it. And he was going to come over and watch it with me. And this, and I lived really far away and he didn't drive. So he would have to transit an hour to come watch it with me. Oh my goodness. So this one day I was like, are you still coming to watch it with me? And he was like, oh no, I'm feeling tired. I don't think mm-hmm. I can come over. I cried the whole way home. Like I cried while driving because I was like, mm-hmm. my assistant doesn't want to watch an, an, a 90s Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with me. Like my rejection sensitivity was off the charts mm-hmm. and just lots of different aspects of managing ADHD during pregnancy were exacerbated. And there was nothing, there was no resources at all. Nobody was talking about what it's like to have ADHD and be pregnant. So I made one YouTube video, which was very blurry and out of focus. <laughs> and it's like on some old YouTube channel somewhere. I, and I've started redoing it. So it was really long. I've broken it up into a trimester. Okay. And so I do have on YouTube a video about first trimester management, but I have to do two and three after that. So then I went into becoming a coach in general. And after a couple of years, I swung back around to this idea of creating some resources for pregnant ADHD years. And I really had no idea if anyone would care because that's sort of the niche, right? So I thought the best way to go about it rather than trying to wrangle however many people in the world are pregnant with ADHD all at the same time and would like some support, I started by creating this journal so that Mm -hmm. people could just have like a self-directed resource to access. And Mm -hmm. as I'm just an ADHD coach, I didn't feel comfortable completely centering myself as some sort of an expert on pregnancy. So I partnered up with my friend, Alex Bacon, who is the head of the, she's the president of the midwives of Canadian midwives association. And she was, or is the head of the midwives association of BC as well. So she's certainly very well qualified to speak to um, the the more medical aspect. And And I also decided to take doula training. In the way of all things ADHD, I haven't quite finished that yet. I'm almost done. <laughs> I'm just getting to it when I can. But, but I've actually helped some people deliver babies at this point, which is very oh, exciting. So- I do have some qualifications now with regards to my expertise in the area of just pregnancy. And Alex and I are we're doing talks from time to time. And I do have a, a coaching group for pregnant people whenever people come to me and they need support. I'm more and more leveling up those resources. Yeah, that's fantastic. The one question that I get a lot, both from other therapists and from physicians that know that we specialize in this area, is they want to know where they can direct people who are interested actually in becoming coaches as well, where to go get a coaching certification. And I've often asked Kadra to to do this, to be the certifiers of a Canadian program. Cause as far Ooh. as I know, there's not a Canadian program. There's quite a few American ones. I don't know if that really yeah. makes a big difference or not. It would be nice to have a Canadian one, but can you tell us a little bit about just, it's a bit of an aside, I guess, but about that experience and what you liked about it, or if there's anything you'd change about it. So I went through ADCA. I certainly felt that the training was very comprehensive in a lot of ways, and I would recommend it. It's interesting, like I've heard a lot of debates around like whether or not people should have certification as a coach or not. My personal, and this is just my personal opinion, because there are lots of great coaches out there who never had training. So I'm certainly not trying to say that they stopped because they didn't get training. But for me, 
if I hadn't have had training, I would have thought that coaching was something completely different than what it was. The time that I started training as a coach, I had never been coached. And I had this idea in my head. And I think, I think what happens, because I've seen this happen in a lot of Facebook groups, is people with ADHD tend to be really good at coming up with solutions to other people's problems. We're kind of a block about our own problems, but we're very helpful so good people. At that. We're very, <laughs> very outside the box thinkers. When I first thought about being an ADHD coach, I thought, oh, it's about solving other people's problems. Mm. And don't get me wrong. I would love to have a career of telling people what to do. Like, I would love that. You're but that's already a mom. That's is, your job. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's not what coaching is. And I so it was a very humbling experience, I think, to learn the proper ways of coaching. It was very eye-opening. And I certainly think that, like, I'm, I feel secure knowing that as a coach, I'm actually helping people in an ethical way. And I'm not doing any harm by trying to assert myself as some sort of an expert in, in anything that I'm not. So I learned a lot about ethics. I learned a lot about what makes coaching effective. I learned how not to center. And I think all of that is really useful. And I also learned quite a lot about ADHD from the ADCA program. So their ADHD program specifically is also really great, super comprehensive, really helpful. So that being said, it is a fairly short program. And I think like when you're starting out as a new coach, there is a lot you have to learn from experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that you could go on self-directed to to continue increasing your coaching capacity and your your body of knowledge and like how skilled you are, or Mm -hmm. you could just stop there. So it's a great way to get started, but it's not certainly like the end of, I think, where your like coaching education should go. So again, there are lots of people who didn't take any coach training and if they're self-learners and they're accessing all these other resources, yeah. you know, they may be like really amazing coaches, but yeah. just for me, I wanted to make sure I was doing it the right way. That's admirable of you. And obviously we're all aware that we know what it feels like maybe when we've had good coaching and we know what it feels like when we've had bad coaching. And so knowing to your point that it's a definite process that you learn that's formalized and actually fairly structured, that it's just nice to know that there's great programs that are out there. Maybe I'll link that one in the show notes. So for people that are interested, they can find I think the ADCA training program was really great. I enjoyed it. And I, I still keep in touch with many of the people who were my teachers. I think they're all also very excellent coaches themselves. So that's great. That's good. Thanks for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. Being neurodivergent myself, long before I knew I I realized I had ADHD, I was already adapting and doing things differently because I had to. So whether we call that thinking outside of the box or meeting people's needs in a different way, I always think it's really interesting when you come to this work as someone who understands what it's like from the inside out, knowing that while ADHD and its origins is the same for everybody, the way it presents and shows up in everyone's life is completely different. I heard this one person say once, if you've met one person with ADHD, you've met one person with ADHD, that's it, right? And so there's not a lot of generalizations we can make. And everyone's always looking for an algorithm, right? Like people will message me and say, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? It's a really easy question. It's like, how do I get my kid to do this? And I'm like, I could have 27 different answers for that. I need to know you, your schedule, your house, your kid. I need to picture in my mind what your kitchen looks like. I need to know so much. I need to like crawl into your life and into your skin almost to understand 
what's happening in the 48 hours preceding the thing that you want to have happen, because all the interventions are out in the environment. I think that makes ADHD coaching different from other kinds of coaching. Because I think in other kinds of coaching, you can come up with an algorithm that supposedly typically will work for the neurotypicals. But the reason that algorithm kind of- on routine and pattern. You can right. count on things being more or less roughly how they're supposed to be. It doesn't really, there's not as yeah. much chaos. You find when you're coaching clients, say for example, pregnancy, right? So pregnant people. Are there themes of things that come up frequently or is it just too diverse to even really narrow it down? I think you're right. Like people, I feel like people with ADHD are always looking for that silver bullet, right? They're always like, what Please. is going to be, That's what's going to be the silver bullet? Finally, <laughs> like this, this, no planner has ever worked, but this is going to be the planner. This plan has never worked, but this is going to be the time, right? We're always looking for that silver bullet. We always want something to be the easy answer with the thing that's going to work. It's like, there's always just some like elusive solution that's just out of our grasp. So people are always looking for that. Like, how do I deal with X? And I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think what makes coaching so useful is that it is literally about the person and their life and what the solution is going to be for them. Have you ever heard the saying that there's only seven stories? No. What is that? And I don't know how true this is to writing, but I heard that for writers, like fiction writers, there's only seven stories that can be told. Every story in the world is an iteration of one of these seven themes, basically. And I feel like the same is true for ADHD coaching solutions. It's going to come back to either reducing overwhelm and breaking it down and finding a way to just get started on the first step or finding a way to create accountability or finding a way to make it interesting for your brain in the moment. There's always going to come back to these really core ADHD concepts, but Mm -hmm. it's about the context of how you like, you know what I mean? Percent. Like like anytime you're cooking, you're going to use salt, fat, acid, and heat like that book, or you're going to use spice. The best documentary ever. (laughs) If you said, how do I cook breakfast? And I say, just use salt, fat, acid, and heat, Christina, Mm -hmm. you're going to be like, what the hell does that mean? Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to be like, Okay, it needs to be like, what are you cooking for a breakfast? Are you cooking eggs? Because in that yeah. case, you might want butter as opposed to like all the butter. Oil, Never right? mind. So I feel like that's how like coaching works, right? It can't just be as easy as breakfast, salt, fat, acid, heat. It has to be like, you're trying to get out the door on Tuesdays to get to Zumba class. And what is the salt, the specificity, fat, acid, right? That context. It's yeah. all about the same solutions, but always in a different context. It's really funny that you bring that up. I think. I don't think I drive my clients crazy sometimes, but I think I surprise them when they're telling me a particular story about something and I slow right down and I want to know in kind of some painstaking detail. And it's funny because you think ADHDers wouldn't actually be good at this detail part. Whenever the thing happened, that was the thing that we're talking about, I really want to know everything that happened in the 36 hours before that thing, down to what you ate, what was in your fridge, how you walked through your house, your experience at work with your other people. How much did you sleep the two nights before that? What got in the way of sleeping? What'd you do instead of going to bed early? All those kinds of things, because people all come to therapy when they find out they have ADHD with this sense of something's wrong with me, fix me. And I'm like, you're cool. I want to know what's happening in your life. Tell me about the complete disarray and chaos that you live with from time to time that you're just running in the hamster wheel from, because that is the solution 
very practically to many of our problems. But getting people to slow down and actually look at that is such a huge shift in perspective. And there's inherently quite a bit of coaching in ADHD adapted psychotherapy, but a lot of the things sometimes that hold us back are very emotionally rooted, right? If we've grown up with ADHD, if we've known it, if you haven't known it and figured it out as an adult, there's some stuff we've got to process through, right? So being able to get to know somebody well enough so that I can super adapt an intervention to only what makes sense to them is relevant to their life is the way that we yeah. found a lot of success, right? Because everybody's exactly. And like, it's the, co- the context is different every time, even for the same person, right? Yeah. So a lot of the time, like the solutions that we come up with are going to work in some situations, but you might need to go through. Somebody said this to me the other, the other day, right? They're like, you have such and so many solutions and you might have to run through three or four or five of them a couple of times a day. The thing I notice with pregnant clients that I've had, and in, even if I look back at my own pregnancy and I didn't know I had ADHD at the time, a lot of people will feel better when they're pregnant and those after the exhaustion months, first right? trimester because yeah. of the yeah. rise in estrogen. And then it, it's the postpartum period when estrogen like bottoms out again for a bit. We are going to have some postpartum anxiety and mood stuff. It's just worse. I say ADHD is like hot sauce, right? It intensifies everything. It makes everything bad worse and it makes good things better a little bit. I don't know if that's solely accurate, but that's my analogy. It's the level of intensity of the mood up and down and the upset and the level of heartbreak that comes with things that it's really hard to describe to people who've never experienced it and not people who have not experienced ups and downs and being sad. It's like this sad, like it's the only thing that matters and the whole world is going to end in that moment and you lose all perspective. It's like you're in this emotion vortex and That's one of the toughest things because I find by the time people become pregnant, they're already in this pattern of either being not very compassionate with themselves, a little bit perfectionistic, and then have this very rigid idea about how it's going to go. And when it doesn't match that expectation that they've had or been sold by culture, by the world, it's devastating, but they blame Mm -hmm. themselves. The experience for like neurotypical people is new parents. Mm -hmm. So it's like times 10. So like, I also, I do have a video series that is about on YouTube. That's about supporting people zero to six months, your baby, six to Mm -hmm. 12 months and toddlerhood, because that period is also, I think the beginning of pregnancy and then the postpartum period is really the hardest part Mm -hmm. for ADD symptoms. Everything in the middle just like organization and emotional management. You're going to have more hormones. You're going to be more sensitive in the second and third trimester, and you're going to have a lot to do and a lot to prepare. And that could lead to overwhelm. And maybe you're still working, especially if you're American. So there's a lot of I think organizational and physical support that's needed in the second and third trimester. But in that first trimester and in the postpartum period, we're really back to that, like black and white thinking, perfectionism, Mm -hmm. rumination, like all that stuff. The impact of the pandemic. On top of that experience, what did you notice with the people that you work with? What was really hard for some of my pregnant ADHD years was trying to find anything that they could do that was fun. Because fun is so important, you know. Oh, I try to get people to have fun all the time. But during the pandemic, there was like nothing that people could go and do. And it's especially Mm -hmm. important when you're pregnant, right? And it's like you're going to have your baby soon and it helps with 
of so many things and like exercise, being able to get out and do the healthy things that can help not just a pregnant person's brain, but an ADHD year's brain were not accessible. That was really hard. There were a couple of people who were shut down and they're like, there's nothing, I don't like to do anything for fun and there's nothing that I can do. And I was like, you're going to have a tough time during pregnancy. You really need to center having some fun and for stress relief and everything. And that is harder when you literally can't go anywhere and do anything. And feel okay to reach out when the ADHDers don't love asking other people for help, probably because we feel like been a burden on other people our whole lives in one way or another. And there's a bit of a point of pride with not having to ask for help, but it's an important task of like adult development, knowing what you need and asking the right person you can trust to help you get to something is something that's a really important skill that, geez, if you haven't figured it out before pregnancy, figuring it out during and after becomes really important. Cause I, the other thing that I found is that never before have I seen so many young families, parents with babies, so isolated without all Mm -hmm. the extra help, not being able to have their parents come over not being able to have aunts and uncles or even just a babysitter. There's a lot of people with a baby or toddlers who have no help. Hey friends, if all you were told about ADHD was here's the medicine off you go, then you've been missing about two thirds of the recommended treatment. The stuff we know really works. Check out DIY ADHD, especially if you're waiting for services. You can get a jump start on all of the foundational education you can use to optimize the healthcare you're receiving or not receiving. Reclaim your family life. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about this resource and use the promo code CCPODCAST for 15% off. My daughter's four and I barely she was about she was a little under two when the pandemic hit so half her life has been in the pandemic and i think i've used a babysitter like once i have very little experience so i'd love to go out for the evening and leave her with a babysitter but it would take some work to get there because it just wasn't an option and that's the thing like a lot of i feel like a lot of what i advise people as well is around delegating as much as possible especially during pregnancy but as people in different areas have done sort of that that tiered reintroduction to life and out of the pandemic in the pandemic like everybody's risk assessment is different i'm comfortable having housekeepers come over i even did have housekeepers during the pandemic but a lot of people aren't comfortable with that and i can't advise people do something they're not comfortable with if we weren't in a pandemic and you could send your laundry out you could have housekeepers you could have dog someone you know even just like trade with the neighbor to walk your dog that would help so much service that also made it hard because delegation wasn't really an option for a lot of people at all That was the hardest part. I'm conscious of the fact that psychotherapy and these are private services that people are already investing in, which is wonderful. Not everyone has great benefits and stuff. I walk away thinking, oh, I'm just trying to get them to pay for house cleaning and meal service delivery and all these things. Back in the day when we had villages and people had babies and you passed your baby around and there were like wet nurses everybody helped out and everyone in the neighborhood and we couldn't do that that was taken away from us and even now though we don't really live necessarily culturally where we can even access that as well so many people live really either far from their parents or they had kids late their parents are actually quite elderly or they don't have parents anymore or for whatever reason it's not working out and they're on their own you're lucky if you know you're two people if you're one person if you're a single mom then it's all on you 
and maintaining your wits about you with just the ongoing stressors of that it's just a lot so one thing I will encourage new parents to do is Mm -hmm. I'm like even if you hate Facebook Mm -hmm. join a Facebook mom's group there's always a mom's group it's funny, like F- Facebook actually is quite a good resource for like community groups. You have to find um, the right even, group. Sometimes yeah. I tell people get off the groups so it doesn't drive <laughs> your anxiety up. But to your point, it's got to be a well-led group. Engaging in the dialogue can be uh, stressful. But the good thing about Facebook mom groups is that I, at least outside of the pandemic, pre-pandemic, they would organize meetups. And I always tell people, I'm like, look, talking to other parents that you don't share interests with is like death. You're going to have to make <laughs> really dumb, small talk, yeah. but the purpose isn't to make friends that you dread spending time with. It's to have support so that if you need to drop your kid off with someone, Facebook mom groups are actually for the most part, mm-hmm. a surprisingly good resource for just like even asking like, Hey, where can I get, there's a formula shortage right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and a friend of who lives in a small northern community her daughter her baby has a lot of dietary restrictions mm-hmm. and so she can only use a certain type of formula but there's only one store in town where they can get that formula and it's out it's out at the supplier and mm-hmm. it's out on the shelf yeah so i've been looking around my because i live in a, an urban area i've been looking around for any of this kind of formula that's still on the shelves yeah. so i posted in my local mom's group and a mom actually had one and she just gave it to me for free it was oh, unopened amazing and yeah. so there's a lot of that kind of stuff which yeah. is really that's lovely can be useful. and if that's all you have like it's not nothing so i do encourage people to like don't want to be the kind of person pushing the stroller in the mall like that's okay it's it it's at least something so it's a start and that's i think unfortunately like for some people going to be like yeah all that they do have if they don't have yeah their parents around so even reflecting on our own experience like when I went back to work and then our little guy the youngest was we're dropping him off at this daycare center that he went to pickup was always the most fun and then you go in and it was like a little clipboard with what happened in the day but in that little small area where you're grabbing coats and boots and collecting your child when we could go in that's when like the bumping into other parents happened and then you would make friends of whoever your kid was hanging out with I'd find the kid that our little guy was into and and then you just start that relationship and once you have kids then you eventually the parents of the kids that your kids choose as friends become another social community for you but it mm-hmm. is for parenting support and the pandemic really took a lot of that away from people if there's a local facebook group that's a mom's group that allows you to have a virtual experience yeah. of finding these parents and even daycares could if they don't already do this i feel like should i've tried to encourage parents to have this like communities of that school so that parents can communicate in a safe way, as private way as possible, if it's a closed group, right? So that they can make these connections and get that support for each other. It's really important. We don't, on that topic, I actually think that this is an area where it is really important that neurodivergent people have spaces because I think the experience of parenting as a neurotypical person and a neurodiverse person, especially oh, it's a person so different. with ADHD, can be yeah. so different that really it can different. be like pretty, I think it can really reinforce some negative feelings that people might have about themselves as parents if they're only hanging out with neurotypical parents. Like yep. I think it's really important that neurodivergent parents, especially new parents, have mm. other neurodivergent parent friends because 
you are having a different experience and your child is much more likely to be neurodivergent. So not only in who you are as a person and a parent, but in like what mm. kind of child you're parenting, you're mm. maybe having a very different experience from someone who's neurotypical and has a neurotypical child, just in terms of what routine looks like or how hard it is to have routine, what organization looks like. And so that's where at least one of the nice things about doing these sort of virtual pregnancy groups is that these people all get to have their babies together like a prenatal class, even if they're in very different areas, mm -hmm. they can still be friends and have a connection. Yeah. And I run an online space called the ADHD studio and it's a private social media network. And a lot of my clients who aren't clients anymore go there. Okay. And so it's a subscription model and I do drop in coaching and so people bunch can of find that from your website, right? Cause I'm, I'll make sure I link that. It also okay. has its own website. It's just ADHDstudio.ca. I opened up that space with another coach so mm -hmm. that people who didn't really need full one-on-one -on -one coaching or maybe couldn't afford it, could still get like some community support. Yep. In there, there's a group just for young parents, parents of kids under age five. Those parents who are neurodivergent need to talk to one another for that validation mm -hmm. and also for like the strategies that are actually going to work for them. I remember I was talking with a friend one time and I said, how do you get your kid to eat their dinner? Because our kids were pretty <laughs> close to the same age. And they said, oh, we have a rule in our house that if you don't finish your dinner, you don't get any dessert. And sometimes she doesn't get her dessert and that's just what has to happen. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. I was like, what do you do when she flips the table? <laughs> what do you do when she starts screaming and freaking out and like literally throws her food across the room? And they were like, we haven't had that happen. So I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, yeah we're not having the same parenting experience. What would they but say in the South? They'd say, oh, bless her heart. <laughs> I have another friend whose daughter is a lot more like mine mm -hmm. and we're both you know, very neurodivergent and we're able i think to connect more and understand each other's experience when it's like dude it's midnight and my kid is still awake sleeping jumping on the bed the sleeping yeah. thing is hard people whose babies won't sleep for more than 20 minutes at a time or i'm not a sleep expert by any means but you know We've gotten three kids to sleep and more than half of the people in my house are neurodivergent and figuring that out along the way is really hard. But sleep is one of the earliest probably signs that you might have another neurodivergent brain, I think, in your home. But it's a lifelong battle figuring out sleep. And it affects everyone differently. Yeah. Everyone with ADHD, for example, has trouble sleeping. I haven't met anyone yet that doesn't, but I'm sure they're out there. I don't really have. Okay. I'll be your unicorn. I don't have too much trouble with sleeping in that when I want to go to sleep, I mostly do. And I mostly get good sleeps. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I have this weird superpower, which is that I can be an early morning person or I can be a late night person. I can shift between them. But as I've gotten older, I've mm -hmm. become like an insomniac. I'll just wake up at three in the morning. I don't know how old you are. Perimenopausal starts to wreak havoc on sleep too. So like early 40s or so, you can start to have sleep problems if you've never had them before. I used to, I was that person that would have like six cups of tea a day and I could have a caffeinated tea right yeah. before bed and go right to sleep. I'm like, how did I slip through the cracks? Like, how did nobody know? <laughs> so funny. You know what? I so look back at that. <laughs> I always thought, wow, that's so interesting that I've never had any problems with falling asleep because that's something that is so common to so many ADHDers because their brain is so busy at bedtime. And then I realized that when I was little, when I was 
younger that was right when discmans were a thing and i remember mm-hmm. that every single night i went to sleep with headphones in my ears listening to music like i would listen to a cd on my discman to fall asleep i, was I gonna never say, fell asleep we need like a visual no, description for all the gen z and maybe younger oh yeah a discman is a tiny like, personal it's like a, a walkman, walkman. <laughs> so a discman is like a little thing like this big and you put a CD in it and you press play. It was a terrible invention because it always skipped. And right. they even invented ones that were supposed to be non-skip. And it just, it was they were a, very unstable. You couldn't really, if you put it on a top of a table and just sat there, it was great. Yeah. But it was great at bedtime. And I listened with my little, you remember? So you intuitively had a strategy yes, that occupied yeah. your brain. And that's probably what allowed you to always go to sleep, right? Exactly. And when I started, when I did start struggling to fall asleep, I was like, oh, okay. So I need me to go to sleep. Sometimes, sometimes too, being an ADHD or when we have those days of paralysis, we're not as physically active because we're like paralyzed with all the things that we are thinking about. Being mentally exhausted is not the same as being physically exhausted. And you kind Mm -hmm. of need to physically work your body to be Mm -hmm. able to go to sleep the way maybe a neurotypical person can. Our bodies and brains just don't. Christina, away. My four-year-old mm-hmm. will most comfortably sleep from 11 p.m. to 9 a.m. Like if she will just, if yeah. I start bedtime at seven, all it means is that I'm doing bedtime for three to four hours. Mm-hmm. Like I can start bedtime earlier. It doesn't mean she, she'll get to sleep marginally earlier. Like 9.30 is early for us. Mm-hmm. 9.30, ooh, I have, ooh, I've got half an hour before I need to go to bed. But yeah. so like she'll most naturally sleep at 11. So I took her to New York this summer and we would get up and it was like the middle of summer. So it was like 35 degrees Canadian, like 35 degrees Celsius or like 30, between 30 and 35. We would get up and leave our Airbnb by eight in the morning. We would walk all, we were tromping through New York. We went to Coney Island. We went everywhere and we were taking like the subway and stuff. No shocker. We were like taking the subway. We were taking the bus. We were going everywhere. We were walking all day long in the blistering heat Mm -hmm. and then on our way home to our Airbnb, roughly around 8 or 9 p.m., mm-hmm. she would pass out naturally on the transit. That's the only time that I've seen her yep. to sleep consistently at 8 p.m. And it literally With a level of exhaustion. It literally 12 hours of, of like constant physical activity. That, and people were like shocked. They were like, wow, she can stay out all day. She can handle that all day. And I was like, yeah, she, that's how hard she goes. That's how much exercise she needs to get like an early bedtime. It's nuts. Yeah, it does. Exercise helps a lot. And it's the one hurdle I'm not very good at, but (laughs) it's really huge. I think there's people who are really good at it. I know there's people who are like so committed. It's their thing. I think it's how they they've managed. And it when you think about athletes, right? One of the late diagnosed places are people who played elite athletes in really competitive sports growing up. And that's what masked their ADHD symptoms because that took care of managing it. It's just, if you can't play at that level your whole life, then it all comes crashing down after that. Yeah. You're giving a talk at Chad in November, which is super cool. Tell us about Chad and tell us a little bit about that. What you anticipate that to be like? The conference is put on by three groups, the ACO, which is the ADHD coaches organization, ADA, which is the attention deficit disorder association, I think is what that acronym stands for. And then CHAD, which is children and adults with ADHD. So they all come together and they put on this big conference, which happens every year in November. And 
I'm speaking there with Alex about the topic of managing ADHD during pregnancy. It's my first okay. time speaking, so it's very exciting. And that that's pretty much all of it. That's, <laughs> that's what's that's really cool. Are there specific like sneak peek pearls you can leave us with? A lot of it is going to be we're going to address the current research and literature on medication. We're not going to certainly make any suggestions for what people should or shouldn't do. We're just going to talk about what the literature says, because I think the really hotly debated, what's the word yep. I want to use? No, <laughs> that's, let's, there's old data, there's new emerging data. Yeah. It's still like a risk scenario, but I think people can do things differently than they could in the past because of the new information we have. So the thing that's like hotly debated or a little bit controversial, that's the word I wanted to use. Okay. The thing that's controversial is that what the literature says, it's not this like black and white thing that yeah. women with ADHD or people with ADHD should never use stimulants or that there's a clear, there's not a clear outcome that stimulants always cause harm to yeah. neonates. In fact, there's very little evidence very that little. it actually causes The old data wasn't in like pure adults who were using it appropriately, right? Most of the data comes from people using street drugs, right? right? It comes from people using illegal stimulants at high levels. That's not to say that there isn't risk at all, but the literature is actually much more nuanced and much more unclear in terms of what we know about outcomes. As far as like how prescribers are prescribing medication, it's not that we, it's not like it's, you know, that we know this, right? And Mm -hmm. so we know that there are prescribers who do keep pregnant people on stimulants sometimes Mm -hmm. and so now we're starting to get that literature and those outcomes Mm -hmm. those accurate outcomes of what it means to take stimulant medication while pregnant so we want to talk about what the literature actually says because there are people out there whose doctors will simply say because you're pregnant you it's unadvisable and i think that's it's It's i'm not saying that's conservative it's very conservative and it's it's not 100% accurate as to what we actually know. So I think there's more interesting data to, to get curious yeah. about there. And then also with breastfeeding too, right? So breastfeeding is another area where there's some liter- limited literature and very little data that's, that says that there's any negative impact on nursing infants, mm-hmm. right? But again, those studies are so small. Right. So again, that doesn't mean that we know that there's not risk or that there is risk. We actually don't really know. So we're going to talk a lot about what the what we do know based on the literature and based on the studies, like risks are, what people, what the trends are, because we already know there are some people out there whose doctors take them off medication. We know that there's some people whose doctors will let them stay on medication. So talking a little bit about what some of those trends have been. And interestingly enough, this year, there's another presenter talking about ADHD in perinatal women, whose name is Alison Baker. And her work, she did a 2020 Harvard study on the impacts of ADHD on pregnant people that looked specifically not at the outcome of meds for neonates but specifically mm-hmm. on the impact of ADHD and whether women and people pregnant people went on or off medication and how that impacted their emotional well-being. So mm-hmm. Alison Baker she actually put the study out that showed that pregnant ADHDers who either maintained their medication or modulated it mm-hmm. had better family functioning and better emotional outcomes than people with ADHD who went uh, totally off their stimulant medication. Which is totally the thing to consider. So if you're pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant or 
breastfeeding and postpartum right now. And you're kind of listening to this and wondering, gee, does this, what are the things you think about? You weigh on the one hand, whatever the data shows that could be a risk like you do with anything when you're pregnant. And on the other hand, what you're weighing is the risk of not taking the medication. So the outcomes of your untreated ADHD, the emotional dysregulation, the stress, the intensity of your experience of life, depending on whether you have mild symptoms, you have a ton of support, you have a great job and a supportive boss, all those kinds of things, or you don't have any of those things. And all those stress hormones washing over that kid's brain, is that going to be good for the kid either? I mean, yeah. you get in a car accident or you lose your job. Is that right. worse for your, your infant's outcome than the potential impacts of stimulant medication. So that's right. what I, that's what I mean when I say like it's very, it's actually a lot more nuanced than people know. So it always upsets me whenever I see someone posting in, cause I'm in a lot of women's ADHD groups. So when I see someone post and say like, I am pregnant and my doctor just point blank took me off meds and I'm yeah. panicking. Yeah. That makes me so mad. Not because they shouldn't go off meds. They just don't have a nuanced understanding of the, I'm the like, you should have at least your yeah. doctor should have at least, you know, because they're this, if I, as a not medical person, person can find these studies and read and understand right, right? Like, <laughs> it's not hard to find this um, data. so that that's yeah. it's really interesting to me that allison baker is going to be there i'm very excited for her talk as well one of the things we're going to talk about is what the literature says about medication mm-hmm. but the majority of our talk is going to focus on what some what people can expect from being pregnant and having ADHD and what some of the strategies are, regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not you stay on your medication. So whether you stay on your medication or you don't, just like some of the ways to manage and some of the ways that your pregnancy might be different. Okay. My last question to you here is to your knowledge, and we're in two different provinces that have a healthcare system while the foundations of it the same, they're actually administered quite differently between Ontario and BC. So my question is this. So whether you're seeing an OBGYN or OBGYN, if you're American and listening, or your family physician's going to deliver you or a midwife or a doula, are there any of those categories of clinician that actually know anything about ADHD out in BC? Great question. Oh, I would say no. And what's interesting is uh, Alex, when Alex started working with me, she, because she is the head of the Canadian Association, Mm -hmm. she found that most midwives were not screening for neurodiversity, almost none. Like she asked a ton of midwives, do you screen for neurodiversity? And they all said no, which is interesting because the impact the experience of pregnancy is also going to be really different for autistic yeah, people. Right. So specifically autistic people as well are going to mm-hmm. have different needs because there's sensory stuff. There's all kinds of things. Screening for neurodiversity is really important, especially because sometimes patients with ADHD can be seen as non-compliant, mm-hmm. right? If they're not, if they're struggling to take their, if they're struggling to make, to do the things that they need to do to keep themselves safe and healthy during pregnancy, that mm-hmm. could be seen as non-compliance. I just forgot. Confidence. So I know for a fact that Alex is really leading the charge to educate people about neurodiversity. And her and I have spoken at, we've spoken at a midwifery conference. I think we have another one. And so she's really, I think, changing the game now among midwives. If you're having 
a fairly normal low risk pregnancy and you can have a midwife like in Canada, at least in BC, basically when you get pregnant, you get to choose between having an OB or a midwife. And that's the person Mm -hmm. who's going to follow you through your whole pregnancy. So I would say that midwives are probably going to be in the coming years more educated. I don't want to be like because of us, but like that's literally what we're doing. And so Alex is in a really good position to be able to change the game that way. Mm -hmm. As far as OBs, I think it would probably just really depend on the OB. And I could see a lot of people not, again, I'm not speaking from experience, but I could see a lot of medical professionals and OBs just not really understanding why having ADHD would be something to consider. Like, why would that impact anything? Physiologically, it's not going to change things for your pregnancy, except for that it actually will. So whether or not a person took stimulant medication, they were more likely to have a baby admitted to the NICU. There are, there's an association between NICU admissions and my parent, the pregnant person with ADHD, regardless of stimulus. So actually OBs should care about it because mm, there's a, there is there's, a slightly elevated risk when you have the infertility association as well. Correlation doesn't, oh, really? there's no causation. Yeah. So if on the ADHDevidence.org website, which is a new one that's been put together by Dr. Ferroni. Am I saying his name properly? Sorry if I'm not. It's excellent. And it's a, there's a lot of great research out there that's translated into everyday language for everyone. And I think that's the point of the website. It's excellent. Oh, I didn't know about that. I'll link it too. But yeah, he comments on recent studies and there was recent studies both around breastfeeding and around infertility too, and specifically the ADHD population. The only thing I'll say is when you're reading studies out there, the thing that kind of drives me nuts sometimes is that they'll say, oh, they found ADHD in the children of this population. And is it because of the condition? It's They didn't screen all the mothers for ADHD either though, right? So if you're not yeah. screening, it's not that right. taking Tylenol caused ADHD. It's that was an ADHD mom who didn't know she had ADHD having a baby yeah. with ADHD, yeah. right? So sometimes there's some common sense stuff we're working in this field that we know we have to look at, but starting to your point, starting to screen for it at a very basic level is so mm-hmm. great. I'm so happy to hear that you're involved with this organization. Alex and I also have a, a talk this month with Doula Canada. So mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that in the coming years, doulas and midwives, at least in Canada, will be more educated as far as how that goes for OBs. I don't know. I don't want to say that an OB wouldn't. I think it would just depend on your OB. And They're trying to minimize all the risk possible. I think it's easy to understand how they would say, if you cannot take it, don't take it, right? If you cannot take anything, don't take anything when you're pregnant. So it's just about having the time to have. And further depth is what's the consequence of you not taking it? That's the important part. And even if it's not about medication, I just think as far as your OB being aware of ADHD and how it may impact you in pregnancy and why that's important, like Mm -hmm. that should be one of the things when when you're selecting an OB, right? I've seen people say, I've seen people say, oh, I'm dating this really great guy and everything's great about him, except for that he says that ADHD isn't real and he doesn't right. believe me. And I'm like, that's not, no, that, that should be part of the thing you're looking for. And it's the same with like an OB. If you're getting an OB yeah. and you do have the kind of ADHD where you think it's going to be an issue in your pregnancy, uh, that's, you want an OB who's going to be neurodiversity affirming, even if they don't see why it's necessary. You just don't want someone who's going to be dismissive. But do you get to select an OB? Isn't it just like who you get is who you get? Or do you get to select? I think you can get referred to someone, but I guess it depends also 
like provincially mm-hmm. I had a choice of OBs like I got referred to someone but I could have chosen someone else like I could switch if I wanted to huh okay that's good news that's good that's good for people to hear yeah. people I, also I, feel I like they're say... stuck with their GP and it's just you know, if you don't feel heard by your family doctor I know it's hard to find a new one there's loads of family doctors around but it can be done and yeah it's an important thing to do I should, I'm going to, I'm going to go back and change what I just said though, because I'm speaking from a place of relative privilege because I live in the lower mainland and the majority of the Canadian population is, is in much smaller communities than we are. Depending on if you're in Toronto, or you're in Vancouver, that's one thing. If you're in Prince George or right. you're in Whitewood, Saskatchewan. It's a good point. You don't know your choice. It's a good point. Thank you so much for all of this information. I'm going to link all of those awesome resources and the different websites and things that we talked about in the show notes. Is there any last words of wisdom that are things you would like to say to anyone that's listening about supporting a person that's pregnant or a young family or somebody individually themselves who has ADHD? If there's so many things I would like to say, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think like the most important thing is to like talk to other people with ADHD and just have your experience validated, whether that's in pregnancy, new parenting or anything you're doing. So often what I hear from clients is, oh, wow, I didn't know that was an ADHD thing. I thought that was just me. I thought I was the only one. Mm. So it's really important, I think, for neurodivergent people to see their experience reflected in others. Even if that doesn't necessarily lead to a solution, it's just really important to know that this isn't a personality flaw or something. Absolutely. Nor is it necessarily something that requires, I'm doing air quotes, quote unquote, fixing. The sooner we accept the kind of quirky and kooky things about ourselves, we can figure out what our strengths are and what works for us. And they're part of what make up the, the magic of all of us individually. Just because yeah. you do something that's an ADHD thing doesn't mean that's a problem. It could be great. Exactly. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Dusty. You're so welcome. It was lovely to see you. Really appreciate it. We will I'll, keep in touch. I'll see you on the TikTok. <laughs> Absolutely. On the TikTok. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. That's it for today, my friends. We hope you enjoy being a fly on the wall for this one. Leave me some messages uh, through the page on Anchor if you have any questions that you want follow up on. And please check the show notes for all the relevant links that we did discuss today. If you like the show, please like and share it. Share it in your social media. Tag us. Dig a little deeper therapy. And that kind of lets us know that we should keep doing this. And it will help the podcast show up in all the places that you do listen to podcasts. Until next time.